Hello, it's Mark Pack here. Welcome to a special episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts. A special episode because actually what follows is an episode from another podcast called Bike Back Chats Books. Bike Back are the publisher of my new book, Bad News, What the Headlines Don't Tell Us, a guide to making sense of the news all around us, a topic that is sadly all too relevant at the moment. Anyway, I did an interview for that podcast and very kindly they've given me permission to also punt it out uh, on my own podcast as well. So sit back, take a listen and if you like what you hear, maybe go grab a copy of my book from your nearest online bookshop. Thanks very much. Hello and welcome to Bite Back Chats Books. This week we've got a very special episode to brighten up your week working from home, if indeed you are, and that's a sit down with political veteran Mark Pack. Mark has been many things, a press officer, a university lecturer, leader of a political party, but most importantly he's the author of our new book Bad News. And we're delighted to welcome him into the Bite Back Studios. Welcome Mark. Welcome, Mark Pack, to the Bike Back Studio. A beautiful view out over London. <laughs> yeah, not bad for a Friday, that's for sure. So, can we start the podcast off by you giving me a bit of an overview of kind of who you are, what you do, and how you got to where you are? Yeah. Um, so, I guess the, the main theme that's been running through my slightly varied career over the years is that I've interacted with the media and the news industry in various ways from lots of different angles. So I've done time as, for example, being a political party press officer in a parliamentary by-election. I have sort of run my own website and email newsletter. I've been sort of interviewed uh, in the media. If you look really hard on the BBC website, you will find a story about me and a pair of UKIP underpants. Okay. Um, And quite often being a talking head on Rolling News and the like, as well as doing some lecturing at City University on their journalism course. So I've interacted with the news in lots of different ways, as well as being a now lapsed regular reader of a daily newspaper, a printed daily newspaper. I used to read a newspaper on the tube on the way into work every day. I'm not quite sure what is more, most remarkable about that memory, either that the way I consumed the news used to be you would read one newspaper a day, or the fact that the tube used to be sufficiently uncrowded that you could actually read a large newspaper and open it up. And, you know, I was just on the tube on the way here for this recording, and it, looked, and it wasn't at rush hour, and I was looking around and thinking, how how did we all used to read those, and particularly broadsheet newspapers, are pretty big. How, did, how was there space on tubes and buses for people to read broadsheet newspapers? So nowadays, I guess, it's a lot more, the way we consume the news, it's a lot more instant, you know, you mm. have so many different sites that you can go to like the BBC and Mm. the Guardian and Mm. the Daily Mail and that kind of stuff do you think that's changed the way that we consume the news? It's a mixed picture Mm. and one of the downsides I guess is that particularly in the world of television news it used to very much be you know, huge numbers of people, tens of millions of people, would sit down in an evening to watch their favourite, their habitual TV news bulletin. And therefore those TV news bulletins didn't particularly have to sort of shock you and grab your attention because you were sat down to watch anyway. There was a bit of needing to you know, make you think, yes, this is something I'm going to want to carry on watching through to the end. But fundamentally, people watched the news because it was there, rather than because earlier in the day they had seen some 
something somewhere that made them think, oh, I want to find out more. I must watch mm. the TV news this evening. Um, and now, of course, there is much more pressure on journalists and much more pressure on media outlets to grab our attention. And that definitely has downsides. And there's an example I talk about in my book, Bad News, with the Guardian newspaper from a story uh, recently about a controversy in West London where residents want a youth club to be moved out of its premises. Now, I have no idea of the rights and wrongs of this story. I've got no idea on which side I would fall if I, say, lived in the area. But what really struck me about the story was it was headlined that residents want to replace a youth club with a coffee shop. And that immediately sounds, that's wrong, that's outrageous, mm. this is, ah, oh, gentrification, snobbishness, whatever. Read down in, into the story and you get to the bit where it talks about how the residents want to replace the youth club with a coffee shop or a library, or a dry cleaners, if I remember rightly. Now, supposing the word library had been picked out and put in the headline, it would have sounded a rather dull parochial story. You know, mm -hmm. Youth club or library will both sound like they're quite good. So, and of course, you know, the Guardian picked the one that gets us outraged, that makes us read, that makes us tweet, that makes me still remember the story and, yeah. and, and, and retell it several weeks later and so on. And so that is definitely a downside. The upside, though, is there's a lot more information readily available. So if you do see a story and you're suspicious about it or want to know more, it's really easy to go online and find out more. At the very simplest, you can find out what a media outlet with a different editorial line you usually use. What do they think about it? So again, an example that I talk about in the book Bad News is gun control in the US. One thing that would always puzzled me, although you know all my instincts are to believe very strongly in gun control, was why Republicans in the US opposed putting people who were on the FBI's sort of suspicious terrorist list, why Republicans opposed even those people being subject to tighter gun control. And the way that story gets presented in the UK, including in right-leaning media, is essentially with a subtext of, aren't these Americans strange? But because of the internet, I was able to do things like go to the Fox News website and read a very different take on the story and find out all about actually how Republicans are really sceptical about the accuracy of that list and they're worried therefore about tighter gun control on the people on that list actually ends up not really getting at suspected terrorists but ends up getting a whole load of innocent people who have been wrongly included on the list. And so now, as it happens, that other side of the story doesn't change my view mm. overall on this topic. But it's a really good thing that you can have a story now where you think these people are just bonkers. And if, and obviously it's a big if, if you then pause and say, but I wonder if maybe I think they're complete idiots because I don't know enough about their viewpoint, you can very easily find out what their viewpoint is. Do you think that the news is becoming more of an echo chamber now, though? Because there is that side that you mentioned that you can see views from across <clears> the <throat> spectrum, but also you're more likely to seek out views that you yourself agree with. Uh, no, and I, it's interesting that, I mean, Eli Parsi, who wrote the book, The Sort of Echo Chamber, uh, sorry, The Filter Bubble, a few years mm. back. I mean, it's a really good book, and I am very envious of his writing style. You know, it's a really good book. It's also, though, the case that if you look at the research that has come out since, and in a way it's a credit to him that his book triggered such a wave of interest in this topic, but if you look at the, interest, the research since, the research pretty clearly comes down on the other side, which is to say that... The problem hasn't got worse and if anything the problem has reduced because for example one of the ways people come across news stories through social media is from friends and colleagues 
and across your friends and colleagues and family, you have actually people with a range of political views very often and quite a range of interests. So although it may be you only see stories that catch the interest of other family members, that in itself gives a little bit of diversity to it compared to the old world of one TV news bulletin that you would watch in an evening and one newspaper that you would read. Could you give me a bit of an overview of your book, Bad mm. News, and kind of what it's about? Mm. And the thing that made me decide to write bad news was partly I just wanted to write another book, <laughs> but also I realised that I had accumulated a series of sort of habits and tips and tricks about how to understand news stories that I'd not seen anyone else write up. Just to give you one example is the use of quote marks. If there are words in quote marks in a story itself, denoting something that's a direct quote from somebody, that's normally a sign of quality of the story and a reason to trust it. Oh, they're directly quoting different people. So quote marks in a story itself, normally good. Quote marks in a headline, exact opposite. Quote marks in a headline mean we're not really standing by this, so we're putting quote marks around it because we don't want to commit ourselves to saying, yes, we really agree with this. Mm. So, for example, if there is a story in which the headline is uh, football star accused of, quotes racism, if there are quote marks around the racism, the media outlet is saying, we're not making judgment on this. If there aren't quote marks, the media outlet is saying, yes, we're happy to say it's racism. So it's the exact opposite of quote marks in the body of the story. And when, when I spotted this one, for example, I thought, surely somebody has got there first. There's probably somebody that there's a law named after and so on. And I hunted around. and I Actually, no, it turns out there's quite a few things I've picked up along the way that nobody else has written about. And also, although there are a lot of really good books about the news, they tend to be either quite serious, dry academic studies, or they tend to really focus in on one element, like science or maths. And so it felt to me like there was actually a gap here that's a popular guide to understanding news stories across the board. And readers will be able to decide whether I filled that gap <laughs> successfully or not. Do you think we need to be more cautious about the way we consume the news in that case? Yeah, and the way I, I view it is that I think the trick is to find it fun. Because again, one of the things quite often with guides to being media literate, whether mm. they come in book form or other forms, is there's something that is just a bit worthy about them quite often. You know, and, and they try to often be interesting and engaging, but mm. fundamentally the underlying message is don't be stupid, do these 12 things to avoid you know, misunderstanding the news. And what I've tried to do in the book is take a slightly different approach which is to explain how it can be quite fun digging into so it's not that it's sort of virtue in terms of sort of you know like remember to go for a run every other day or remember to eat broccoli or whatever but it's actually no it can be fun uh, because once you dig into stories the ho the fuller story behind uh, things that are untrue or misleading is often much more interesting than sure. the original the original misleading story. Do you have any examples of that that you couldn't think of? Well, one, one example is this cat uh, uh, from the US who occasionally pops up in the news as allegedly having been summoned for jury duty. And again, there's another theme here with the sort of examples I'm using today of you know, stories from other countries. It's mm -hmm. always a bit easier to then think, just assume, oh, they're weird in that country. Always a bit easier to make that assumption about people in other countries. So there is this, the story is, pops up every now and again about this cat supposedly summoned for jury duty and clearly that was daft, you know, what a weird bureaucracy. And actually when you dig into the truth about it, it's it's much more interesting because in part, you know, originally the residents of a, of a property filled in a form wrongly and therefore the cat was registered as being a human being there. But then when that human being, cat, was summoned for jury duty, the form they got didn't have a 
not surprisingly, the form didn't have a, this person doesn't exist, they're really an animal, we filled in the form wrongly before. <laughs> but, so they ticked the box of doesn't speak English. Oh, Technically correct, obviously <laughs> the cat doesn't speak. And they thought, okay, we've got to fill in this form, we'll tick it. How at the bureaucracy on receiving forms where people claim they don't speak English, sometimes then summon the people to court to check if it's really true that their English is not good enough to serve as a juror. And that's actually not unreasonable. If you think, you know, we have this issue in Britain as well, actually quite often with people being a bit reluctant to do jury duty and looking for excuses. So if somebody says, my, la my language skills are not good enough, saying, OK, please come in. So the reason the cat was summoned to the court was actually quite sensible in the sense that somebody had claimed somebody didn't speak English, will summon and you know you, you don't have to be you know do massive amounts of research to get to that truth bit of it but actually I think it's it's you know it's a more interesting it's a more fun story about how you know people filled in a form wrongly and then faced with this another form about how, how do we avoid our cat being summoned for jury duty you know what what option do you pick there's you know I mean you're you're smiling hopefully people listening to this are laughing a bit at that sort of inanity of that form option much more fun Great, so let's just pivot slightly uh, and talk about politics in the media mm. because this is such a fraught relationship, yeah. especially now. And I know that you are co-leader of the Lib Dems at the moment. Interim co-leader of the Interim Lib Dems. Interim co-leader of the Lib Dems. Until uh, mid-July. Until mid-July. So that's when we'll have, yeah, a new leader-elect. Leader are there people that are already teeing up now to kind of take a swing, as it were? Um, so, yeah, it's, we've got a slightly extended run-up period. One of, mm. things, one of the reasons we had for deciding to run the Lib Dem leadership election in sort of June and July rather than sooner was it would give people more time to think about the lessons from last year and particularly our disappointing general election result. Because otherwise, if you plunge straight into a leadership election, the risk is you never really do a proper post-mortem on what happened before because it's immediately coloured by, well, are you in favour of candidate X or are you in favour of candidate Y? Sure. Are you guys looking at the Labour leadership election right now and kind of <clears throat> are the lessons that you guys have taken from that because at the moment it's a, that's also a little bit tense I suppose. Yeah. I mean I think the thing that strikes me about the Labour leadership election and actually I've noticed people in the Labour Party say this as well so this is only just from the outside mm. is it's taking a heck of a long time. But one of the other things we decided to do was as well as leaving the Lib Dem leadership election to kick off in sort of May and run through to July, but also to have a, a shorter time scale than we've had in the past for our leadership election. So once it kicks off, it will run through and be over and done with rather more quickly than we've sometimes done it in the past. And I think looking at how long the Labour leadership contest feels, that was definitely the right decision. So as co-interim leader of the Lib Dems, mm. how has your relationship with the media changed since taking on position? Being press officer is one thing, mm. and then kind of controlling mm. what you... Yeah out into the world as like I mean I think the main difference is that you know when I've appeared in the media previously as a Lib Dem it's mainly been as a commentator talking about the Lib Dems and there's a big difference between that and the role that I'm in now and it's basically about if you mess up a bit if say you're recording something uh, and you mess up a bit if you're a commentator the you know the journalist the editor will often be quite happy to edit it so that you are clearer and more coherent. Because if you're commenting on something, then for the audience, clarity and precision and accuracy is helpful. And it's just boring and annoying if the commentator is no good. If, however, you are the subject of the story, so mm. like you are a political party leader or an MP or whatever, and you mess up, then you messing up is the story. Yeah. And so there's a, quite a different bar in that respect. And you see this often when people stumble a little bit in an interview. If it's, say, at the interview of somebody who witnessed a traffic accident and they're a bit incoherent, journalists don't pounce on their incoherence. 
they help the interviewee through their incoherence because that's what serves the audience best. Of course, if you're an MP, for example, and you stumble a bit in an interview, then the journalist pounces. Do you think the British press is particularly <clears throat> unforgiving in terms of that? Uh, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I think the the whole question about how abrasive the press is and how forgiving the system is more widely is would make for a brilliant book for someone to write, if anyone's thinking about this. Because if you look at, for example, Australian politics, Australian politics, I mean, my goodness, if you think MPs in the House of Commons at PMQs were a bit badly behaved, you know, they've got nothing on Australian politics. Yet, for example, in Australia, it's much more usual for somebody to lead a political party to a horrendous election defeat, and then to come back and maybe even win a future election and become prime minister. There's a much greater sense of forgiveness in that respect, that you can fail horrifically and that's not the end of your political career, even though other bits of Australian political culture are really aggressively rumbustuous. So I, I think in Britain it's we're almost the, the opposite, that we're a bit more genteel in the exchanges, but also a bit more ruthless with people's political careers being over when they're over, sure. with only the occasional exception of somebody like, say, William Hague, who, you know, despite having a somewhat disastrous time as leader of the Tory party, actually then came back to be a, a cabinet minister who you know, did his did his job very competently. He's okay. also written some excellent books, but they're oh. for another publisher, so let's oh. not go into that. <laughs> Can't discuss the competition. <laughs> uh, so what do you think is the future of the way we consume news in that case then? Do you think, for instance, that like the traditional like news, again, like the BBC, like the broadsheets especially, do you think they're going to carry on this stick around? I think the I think the big shift that we're seeing that is not getting talked about mm. is related to the rise of podcasting. Sure. And But also, if you look at the uh, circulation figures of newspapers, magazines, and so on, mag- a lot of news and current affairs magazines are doing quite well. So, that, so we've got this shift away from the instant news of the TV news bulletin, the radio news headlines, the morning newspaper, to this slower-moving, longer-form content, which is often much more reflective with podcasts and with magazines. Now, alongside that, we also have the rise of social media, which rather overshadows that. But I think there is this other trend which is really helpful towards news that is less about chasing the latest headline Mm -hmm. and more about diving into particular topics in depth. I mean, a good example of this would be, say, uh, the BBC's more or less uh, radio show, radio and podcast, uh, which takes stories in the news and then dives into the statistics behind them. And so more or less is normally a week or two behind the news. So current enough to still feel quite relevant, but also sufficiently slow moving that there's time to really dig into a story. So if a politician mentions a figure, there's time to ring up their press team to try and find out where they got the figure from and then if that they quote somebody else this they've then got time to go and talk to that somebody else and then they've also got time to find another expert with another viewpoint and so slower moving but much more insightful so it says in the blurb for your book that mm. readers as a result of reading your mm. book will learn how the news is ill-suited to understanding mm. and interpreting yeah. the modern world we might have already have covered mm. this but i just want to know how that is and then how we can improve it mm. aside from like, obviously reading your excellent yeah. book <laughs> um, i mean i think the big problem with the news and that has always been a problem with the news is that the factors that most affect our lives are often ones that are not very suitable to the format of the news. So if you think about just the health of humanity and how good people's lives are and how much they are marred by death and tragedy, the massive global long-term 
success in improving public health by tackling some really nasty killer diseases has been amazing. Huge amount of progress, huge numbers of lives saved. But that very rarely makes the news because what makes the news, as for example at the time we're recording this, is a scary outbreak of a new virus that you know may kill you and which we don't have a, a treatment for yet. What makes the news would be a corruption scandal over a development project that was meant to improve people's lives being mismanaged or whatever. But just day after day getting things right and making life a bit better is too dull to be in the news. So the big problem is that if you really want to understand the world around us, it involves understanding these longer term trends. And because they're longer term and often because they also involve successes and yeah, people not dying is dull in a way. Desirable, but mm. dull. Yeah, if a hospital successfully operates over a weekend and saves a whole load of people's lives with a whole load of complicated operations, unless one of them is famous, it's not news. If a hospital messes up and removes the wrong leg from somebody, that's news. And that's the problem, is if you only end up judging people or institutions or just the state of the world, by the occasional wrong leg story, you end up massively missing all of the good news that's out there as well. But the good thing is, if you that cynicism can then lead you to greater optimism about the state of the world. That's true, that's true. What's one thing you think people should take away from reading your book? Uh, that it will make a brilliant present for all of their friends and relatives. Obviously, so they should buy even more copies. But I think the main thing, I guess if there was one thing, it's if you ever come across a story from the Daily Mail, go and read the last paragraph of it because there's a really distinctive style to the Daily Mail stories where the first paragraph and headline are the shock horror bits, then the next paragraphs extend on that, and then the last paragraph is when, with an eye on libel law and press regulation and maybe their own consciences as well, you often get the truth snuck in. And once you start noticing it, it's amazingly striking how often what the last paragraph tells you is a completely different takeaway than from what the headline and the first paragraph told you. It's a bit like when you first discover that, uh, look at watch adverts, adverts for watches with physical faces, with hands, an hour and a minute hand. Almost all of them have the hour and the minute hand in the same place. When you first notice that, you then suddenly start seeing it everywhere and think, how on earth did I never notice that before? Likewise, when, when you first start noticing that point about the Daily Mail paragraph, final paragraph being different from the first, you suddenly start noticing it all the time. So final question, what's next in the pipeline for you? Do you have any more projects or is it much more like knuckle down, Lib Dem, election campaign, here we go kind of thing? Uh, so my plan is to write another book this year. Okay. But we are now into February and I've not really written very much about it, obviously, because I've been uh, responding to all the excellent proofreading comments from yeah. your colleagues. Uh, colleagues Lucy and Olivia here are bike back. Um, but that's my plan, is to try and crank out another book this year. We'll see what happens on that oh, front. Days. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another Bite Back podcast. If this conversation has tickled your interest, why not buy a copy of Mark's book, Bad News, and learn how to navigate the headlines like a pro? You can find us on our website, bitebackpublishing.com, and any good online retailer. Stay tuned until next week. Until then, goodbye.